When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Lauren, I don't know about you, but after all of the work that we put in covering the show, I'm ready to go into hibernation (laughs) until season two happens at this point. (laughs) I need a good, long rest. (laughs) I can understand that. And I hope that Renera, after her horrible, no good, very bad day, got at least some sleep. Because I was like, this is a lot for one lady to deal with in a day. (laughs) This is very much like, this is way too much for one lady. So... Yeah, we'll definitely get into that a little bit because I, too, had some timeline questions about how this was all transpiring. Yes, I agree as well. Yeah, lots to unpack. Yes, but you have been talking to our various House of the Dragon creators uh, and you will be publishing a ton of content and you already have published a ton of content to EW over the next couple days. So everyone should watch out for that. You've already published a few postmortems. Yeah, it's turning into kind of a week-long coverage affair of the finale, which I didn't (laughs) intend. It's just kind of happening that way. Um, I interviewed showrunner Ryan Condal, um, Mm -hmm. and we published two articles from that interview, um, one about a certain big moment that happens in this finale episode, and another about what he can say about season two. He's currently fleshing out the drafts of scripts for season two at the moment um he didn't want to say too too much but um i think what he said you know we could kind of glean from where the season one finale episode leaves us off um and then i also interviewed director greg yatanis who directed this season finale episode that interview will be coming this week um and i have a couple more surprises that i'm not going to reveal just yet um, exciting but they will also be coming um towards the end of the week and then friday i'm just going to collapse into a <laughs> well deserved well deserved rest so that's good yeah but i think we could probably start breaking down this uh this uh series finale or season finale excuse me not series finale so yeah shall we get to it yeah let's get to it i mean for anyone listening and hi i'm nick a senior writer here at ew um, and Lauren Morgan, our fearless photo editor and podcast queen at EW. We uh, <laughs> co-host West of Westeros Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast. Um, we're doing things a little bit differently this week because HBO did not send press um, screeners of the finale episode in advance like they normally have been. So we haven't been able to record our podcast and the typical release window. Um, so we're taking to Twitter space to kind of break down all of the juiciness all the events uh, that (laughs) happens 
Um, and Lauren, I'm, I, I mean, we've been talking about this show all season long. I'm, I'm so happy that you're here to talk about this episode specifically. I know it's been very, it's been so much fun, like breaking down, uh, the first season of house of the dragon with you and you've done an excellent job covering it. I just wanted to give you a shout out. And if you guys have not read, uh, Nick's great coverage, please uh, go to EW. There's tons of stuff uh to uh to to sate your curiosity about this show so uh what did you think though of the the season finale yeah i mean so really quickly just for anyone listening just because you know this is a twitter space our kind of standard podcast rules apply so we're still Mm -hmm. um going to be talking about the show um with the understanding that anything that's aired on the series up to this point is fair game to talk about as is anything that's been mentioned in the press so far um, we'll only be bringing in the books if we feel that it helps clarify what we're seeing on screen. Um, but then we're going to have a smaller section later on in this discussion where we really bring in the books, talk about the show in relation to George R.R. Martin's Fire and Blood, and really kind of have a spoiler-friendly open conversation, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, I know a lot of people have already shared their opinions on social media about this episode. Um I really appreciated it. I, I really did. I, I liked how it was paired with the penultimate, which was very much focused on Allison and the Greens. And this episode mm-hmm. is very much focused on Rhaenyra and the Blacks and sort of seeing how um, both sides are really responding to the death of the king. Um, Rhaenyra, to me, felt far more complex of a character than when we get in the book. Um I will say, and this is a very minor book spoiler. Um, it's actually not really a spoiler. It's just a line of dialogue we get that we get in the mm. books where Rhaenyra has this line where, you know, she says, um, tell my half brother, um, I will have my throne or I will have his head. Um, but we don't get that <laughs> mm-hmm. in the show. Um, and I understand why. She seemed like she's thinking it right at the end, though. Like, that look on her face looks like she's about to take someone's head off. But. Yeah. I mean, in the book, she very much comes across as, like, how dare the Greens do this to me? Like, I'm out for blood. or mm-hmm. we're, we're ready to rally the troops. Um, but you really spend a lot of time with her internal conflicts um, in this episode. Um, and really seeing everything that she's grappling with and understanding that, you know, she's, <laughs> the, the king is dead. Um, she has a miscarriage, which we'll talk about a little bit more earlier in this discussion. Um, mm-hmm. And then everything that happens in the end. I mean, it's kind of a journey for me. I don't know, Lauren, what did you feel about this? I thought it was, you know, I thought it was really great to see just how much conflict that Rhaenyra was feeling. And I did like the fact that we just, solely focused on her it wasn't like we were going back and forth to king's landing like this was really just everything from rainier's perspective everything that was just happening on dragonstone i really i really liked that uh emma darcy was magnificent i thought just trying to juggle all of the conflict that like uh that you know rainier couldn't believe almost like didn't want to believe that Allison had didn't done this and then uh trying to come to grips with that trying to come to grips with the fact that she was now queen and that now she she really did have to take the responsibility of the realm like you know she had to she had to think about like what like she did not want to just start you know sending the the dragons flying and start torching stuff which you know Damon did uh she really was trying to think this through and think like what could 
could be done that would not cause a war. And I, I thought that just sort of like sense of conflict. And, and as I said before, like she's having a no good, very terrible, very bad day. Um, Cause it's like, you know, she finds out her father dies. She starts to have, you know, she starts to uh, have a miscarriage and, and another horrible, horrible birthing scene. I don't need to see any more birthing scenes from the show. This was just like, you know, cause it, it seems like I, I, I know in the book that uh, her daughter, she did have a daughter. It was called Visenya, uh came a full moon early. So I assume like just like a, a month or so early, but you know, back in those times you didn't have NICUs and all this kind of stuff. And it, it just does seem like the daughter was, was still born anyway. Um, so it just was sort of like, oh, that that was awful. And then right as she's trying to bury it, like, you know, uh, Sir Eric shows up with uh, the crown. And, you know, it's just like this lady, she like just needs to like take a nap and have a drink. Like <laughs> this is a lot for her to process. <laughs> I did feel terrible for her in that, you know, but I, I, I but I just thought that uh, the Emma's uh, performance was great, though. Yeah, I think my favorite scene of Emma's is after Rhaenyra is crowned queen. Um, she walks into the war room at Dragonstone with a crown on her head. And you can feel the awkwardness. She's getting yeah. used to this position she now has. Uh, the guards walk in line with her in step. Yeah, and She gives them a hand like, no, uh, stand back, I'm good. And then Raina comes over, gives her a cup of wine. Um, I was talking to my roommate about this and she said that what stood out to her was that, you know, these are all things that would have been happening for King Viserys. Yeah. And now these same thing. I mean, Viserys loves a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and now these same things are, they assume these same things should be applied to Rhaenyra and she's having a hard time with that kind of adjusting yeah. to this new normal. What was one of your favorite scenes of Emma Darcy's performance? Oh, just that the entire, I will say like the birth scene is as awful as it was. Like she was just, you know, she was so, so good in it. And we're, and, and just the fact that she wouldn't let herself be touched. It's like, she's just reliving the horror of her mother's birth, uh, or her mother's, uh, you know, her mother's death. And so like that whole scene where she's just like trying to manage this, but going through like, you know, I just thought she, she was really great at that, but like, yeah, that scene where she just comes in and she's just like, she doesn't know quite how to be queen yet. And she's just looking around and she realizes everyone's looking at her and how she's just trying to kind of work her way, work her way through it and like trying to figure out. And then she has just Damon who is, it, I thought that was the interesting thing about Damon where I was just sort of like Damon up until this point seemed like he was like very supportive of her. Very like, what do you want me to do? You want me to cut his head off? All right, I'll cut his head off. Like, I'll, you know, like just kind of like her right hand and like sort of like this, like this uh, fissure that you see between them where Damon's like war now. And, and Renera, you know, also has to, you know, she's birthing their child. So she can't kind of control him. Like that kind of, that aspect of it, I was a little bit like, hmm, you know, I didn't really quite feel that on, on Damon's side. But in terms of like, there were, she just had so many great scenes that I, you know, I, I, I was like, oh, this will definitely be their Emmy reel. Yeah. Uh, so just to clarify, when we're talking about Rhaenyra, we'll use she, her pronouns. When we're talking about Emma that, Darcy, yeah. the actor, we'll use they, them. Um, but let's talk about this birthing scene a little bit more. I don't <laughs> Ryan Condell has, you know, described um this season in particular in part 
as an exploration of the trauma of childbirth. But mm-hmm. these birthing sequences oh, are God. so hard to watch. Yeah. This one in particular, because we we see Rhaenyra reach inside of herself and pull her stillborn daughter out of her womb. And then yeah, we get this that- shot of this like poor dead Visenya on the floor covered in blood. It's it's a lot. And I'm trying yeah. to understand if there are like what the merits are for actually showing that kind of very graphic depiction of it. I, Lauren, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it did show like what a terrible thing she's going through, but I was just like that. I, that's, I don't, you know, and having, you know, I have given birth to a child myself. I did not. <laughs> it, did, it was very, <laughs> very graphic. And I, I did feel bad for, you know, anyone who potentially had dealt with pregnancy loss. This could be extremely triggering. So uh, if you haven't watched the episode yet, uh, th- just know that. Um, so I, I, there were certain shots where I was like, I don't know if we needed to see that shot. I think we could have kind of gotten what was going on here without it being so visceral. Um, uh, but I mean, uh, yeah, that that was like, I was like, this is a little bit much for me. Um, but I, I did, I was really moved when she was wrapping the baby herself and wasn't letting the silent sisters do it, that she was like preparing the baby, uh, you know, for its funeral pyre. And I just was like, Oh God, you know, I, I am curious though, exactly what the timeline was because this kind of made it seem like this was all the same day. Um, but perhaps Mm. it was not because I was like, yeah, this is a very busy day you've got going here. Uh, you know, where she, uh, you know, Sarah Eric uh, shows up with the crown at the funeral and her coronation is also the baby's funeral. And you're like, this is a lot. So uh, I don't know how you felt about that. Yeah, it was a little hard to kind of piece together. Um, one thing before we kind of talk about, you know, timeline questions that I wanted to bring up is one thing that I did like about the childbirth scene is there's a moment where the camera flashes between the face of Rhaenyra and the face of, I believe it's Cyrax, but it could mm-hmm. be another oh, yeah. dragon. Mm-hmm. And that brought me back to like a passage in Fire and Blood where one of the accounts, one of the historical accounts of these events um, states that when Visenya was stillborn, she came out looking almost like a half-human, half-dragon hybrid. Um, and so that was where my mind like initially went. Um, I spoke to Greg Utanis and we're going to be releasing that interview in full um, a bit later um, on the podcast and also on EW.com. But he said that he really wanted to kind of emphasize this kind of mystical connection between Targaryens and their dragon. And like what Rhaenyra is going through in this moment is also what Cyrax is kind of um, empathetically feeling at this time. Um, Greg also mentioned that Emma Darcy was very hands-on and very influential in crafting um, this birthing scene in particular, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and we'll be revealing more from that conversation a little bit earlier again. Um, but yeah, timeline questions. I'm, mm. I, I don't know. I, I got the sense maybe, um, you know, the birthing situation that was, I, I, I don't know. It felt like all like the same day to me. Like it started yeah. in the morning, coronation was later in the day. And then maybe, I don't know, the next day. I don't know. I, I, I'm still piecing it all together in my head. Yeah. I mean, we, we just both saw this episode last night. Um, we're, <laughs> we're still wrapping our heads around it. Um, yeah. 
what were your, your some of your other big timeline questions when it came to this episode, Lauren? Um, yeah, I guess I was just like, like, how long did it take uh, Renice? Like, I'm assuming it does not take long to go between King's Landing and Dragonstone. So I'm assuming Renice landed on the same day as the coronation. So she just busted through the dragon pit and headed to Rhaenyra. So I'm assuming it's like that morning. Uh, what I did like, though, was um, how everything with Luke and Luke was afraid that Renice was coming to announce that he was becoming Lord of Drif- Driftmark. And I know. <laughs> relief where he's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, that's not, you know, that's not here. And uh, yeah, so th- that was a kind of interesting. And then also with Corliss, and I was so glad to see Steve Toussaint, and I think he's been marvelous as Corliss, and I was so glad to see him back in this, because I think he gives, a, like, a real energy to the scenes, where it's sort of like, like, and when he showed up uh, to, I guess, the the Black Council, I think that was what that uh, that was, like, when yes. he sort of showed up and was like, you know, you have our support, and it was very interesting, because, like, in the book, there wasn't all of that sort of doubt about what Corliss and Renice would do um, like they they were just on Team Black and you kind of just knew it but like I liked the fact that the show kind of had their back and forth about like knowing that you know the Valarians were like the Valarian boys were not their Sunlane Oars but like the fact that like you know Rhaenyra basically all of their grandchildren are tied up with Rhaenyra and so it's sort of like you know, to support their own house, they support Renera. But I, I did really think that was like I was so glad to see him back. And because, like, once you know that Lord Corliss is on Renera's side, you're like, oh, they've got a fighting chance now because this new this new uh, sea snake is there. So, um, but yeah. yeah, I did have some questions about like you know because they were announcing that he was coming from Driftmark, and then but then you never really saw him, and then he wound up in like you know. There, there was some sort of like there were some is- timeline issues here where I would have liked to know exactly how many days this was occurring over. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Rainey, so I want to bring up a couple of things. Yeah, like, well, she was so much fun to watch in this episode. Yeah. Um, the first thing I want to bring up is when she first gets to Dragonstone and is telling uh, Damon and Rhaenyra about everything that happened at King's Landing. Um, Damon is visibly and audibly pissed off that she didn't just torch the whole place and kill all the greens as retribution. Mm-hmm. And it's and listening to all the inside the episode featurettes and also talking to the various behind the scenes creators um, about that moment. Um, it seems like everybody had a different answer for why Rainice didn't torch everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Rhaenyse gives an answer in this episode saying a war is probably going to be raged over the throne. I'm not going to be the one to start to this start war. It. And that made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, I um, thought that that was really like when she said that, because I mean, I saw like last week on Twitter, everyone was like, she should have yelled to Karish. She should, you know, there was like kind of a lot of controversy about it. But her saying, you know, and as we I think we talked about last week that she was basically firing a warning shot. And, and she's right here. This is not her war to start. This is like it's it's Renera's throne and it, you know she's yeah when when she said that i was just like yeah that that totally explains her thinking here that you know there's going to be a war but she's she's not going to be the one to start this whole thing so i thought that was 
you know, that was, I think, uh, a, a good, uh, I, I thought she was great in the whole episode as I've thought of the rest of the season. Yeah. It was a, it was a little strange for me though. I'm like, why aren't any of the creatives kind of saying that? Like yeah. that's in the show. <laughs> <laughs> like- <laughs> and I wonder if they were just gonna, they were letting Renee sort of speak for herself after, you know, after this whole thing, like, you know, it's like, oh, she'll answer it. And because, you know, it's because it, Damon asks immediately. And I'm like, I'm glad Damon asked. Because if they hadn't have asked, it would have been a very much like, uh, is no one asking why she didn't <laughs> just light this whole thing up? So I was like, I was like, oh, so there's an in-show in reason why that didn't happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's also playing into Rhaenys's, um kind of respect for Rhaenyra in this moment. Just as Rhaenys showed restraint and not killing all the greens at the coronation, mm-hmm. she's admiring the fact that Rhaenyra now as queen um, is show- is the only one at the war table, at the painted table, so to speak, showing restraint. Um, I also loved all these very just small kind of throwaway moments with Rhaenys. Mm-hmm. Um, when Rhaenyra is crowned initially, um, Rhaenys is the only person who's like not sort of security basically um, kneeling she's yeah. just standing up and then when Rhaenyra enters the war room at Dragonstone for the first time with her crown um, Rhaenys is the only one in the room not bowing her head um, and then also, I think my favorite though it has to be when you know Damon is kind of comparing dick sizes a little bit and like saying who has the most dragons which side has the most dragons he mentions, oh, we have Melise. And Rainey's just gives <laughs> a little head tilt. Yeah, that was such like, a subtle moment. Oh, you, I was oh like, do really, you? bitch? You yeah. think you have my dragon? Nice. Yeah. Nice try. It's nice like, try I, with that. I haven't decided where my dragon is going yet. So, you know. <laughs> she was like, I did think like Ufest did a lot of like great silent acting, and especially in that scene where Renera's crown and she does not bow. Um, but later on, when she does decide, um, you know, when um, Coralis mentions that they have the, te- the steps in, and then she steps up and she's like, I will take Melise to to guard the um, the gullet. Uh, and then you're just like, oh, so, you know, basically, Renise is like, I shall decide when I join this war. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> you know. So let's now talk about Damon. Um mm-hmm. I feel like so many people have been getting behind Damon, just like viewers and yeah. wanting to root for him. And then he, in this episode in particular, he really reminds us that, Oh, He's not like, a great oh wait, he is the guy who like just straight up murdered his past yeah. wife, like bashed yeah. her over the head with a rock until she was dead. Um, and we get that moment where he's choking Rhaenyra in the throne yeah. room and also like hearing Rhaenyra's cries for him during the childbirthing sequence. And he just pays it no mind. He goes yeah. off like planning this war that he really wants. Um, Lauren, I don't what were sort of your impressions of this whole Damon and also the likability of Damon. Should we yeah. like him? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I found like Damon. I think is one of the one of the characters that really popped over this season, and I think that's just, you know partially to like Mart, Matt Smith, such a, a great actor, and he always just comes at things in sort of an untraditional manner. Like he always just spins a line in a way that you won't wouldn't expect him to. Uh, and so I understand like the viewers. Um, you know, why he's become sort of a fan favorite. But this was a reminder like, oh yeah, Damon's not a nice person. And, you know, coming up, Damon is going to do some stuff that is is pretty dark. 
not to get into spoilers too much. Uh, but like when mm-hmm. he gra- like when he started choking Rhaenyra, I was like, oh, I did not, did not. It's, that sort of threw me uh, threw me off a little bit because it was like, but you do start to see that there's sort of a fissure between them of like him. You know, he, you know, he's always wanted the throne himself. And, uh, you know, I mean, and I do think he truly does, does care for Rhaenyra. Um, but yeah, this was, this was a very sort of dark moment. Uh, and I, I thought that was very interesting when, uh, Rhaenyra's like, oh, Viserys never told you about the prophecy. Yeah, that was a big question. uh, One of the lingering questions, like, did Damon, as the former heir to Viserys, did he know about, was he told about Aegon's prophecy? And we get an answer that no, he really didn't. Or maybe uh, more. Maybe Viserys told them, but they were both drunk, and Damon forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Just you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I did ask Ryan Condal about the Damon situation because I know. Um, some of the fan feedback was that, you know, this was kind of going against his own character or yeah. like motivations to choke Rhaenyra. Um, I'll just read one quote um, that he gave. Um, uh, and he references um, a passage in Fire and Blood that there was not a man so admired, so beloved and so reviled in all Westeros. Um, and he goes on to say, quote, he's not the cowboy in the white hat. He's a deeply wounded, complex, dark individual that is capable of doing some really great things. But Damon is a prickly pear. He is a uh-huh. complex individual who has some real darkness and violence in him. Um, and I think that tracks yeah, certainly pretty much, yeah. in this episode. But I don't know. What do you think, Lauren? Do you feel like, especially that moment of him choking Rainier, did you feel like it was going against what we knew of this established character in season yeah, it was one? Like, I could almost buy everything else. Like Damon, like get my dragon. We're going to war. Like that, that stuff with the choking was just one thing where I was like, but you know, he did murder his other wife. So uh, maybe that just sort of took me aback in, in one way. But you know, Damon is, is not nothing but unpredictable. So uh, yeah, I, I could kind of see it. It was just very interesting, though, like how this sort of like confluence of the events was in a healthy relationship to people would, would lean on each other. But, you know, there was him dealing with the do- their, their stillborn child's birth and like the whole and, her, and him thinking that Alicent murdered Viserys, where I was like, dude, look at what your brother was like. There wasn't, you know, that, that, that didn't take much, <laughs> probably, <laughs> you know, but how he immediately just went to, to thinking that, that they had killed uh, his brother, um, you know, so he, he is a little bit of a paranoid sort, but that part was like very interesting how he just kind of immediately thought that. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. The one thing though I did notice is that 
obviously that like that final scene uh when he's walking and it's just all their backs and he just walks up to Renera and you can tell what he told her that Luke had died and just like how like and just even just the way that like Emma just stumbled and you know that he had to be the one to break it to her that Luke was dead and that you know she'd lost two children within the course of I don't know a day two days you know um, that this would put stress on any kind of marriage so it's kind of an interesting part of it and that brings up another timeline question like yeah one how did Damon find out about the death of Luke because we are we're led to believe that no body was found. Yeah. At least that's, that's what we know in the book. Um, and clearly Luke and Arax, his dragon, fell into the ocean. Um, and who told them? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't who know. Who sent if, the raven? <laughs> I, I don't Yeah, it seemed like it happened pretty far up and probably a little bit away from Storm's End, but uh, I don't know if Eamon arrived back on Storm's End after his little oopsie. Um, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious who, who sent the raven or, uh, you know, I, I do think like perhaps maybe they should have sent somebody else to Storm's End. Like maybe Renice should have gone to Storm's End because like she is part Baratheon, so she might have been a better emissary here. But alas, poor Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other thing before we talk about Storm's End um, that I want to bring up is that it wasn't clear in the episode, like no no one named um, this creature that we see, mm-hmm. um, but HBO confirmed on Twitter that the dragon, this massive dragon um, that Damon visits singing his High Valyrian lullaby going into the caverns um, in the caves at the Dragon Mount and Dragonstone, um, that is Vermithor which is the dragon that once bonded with King Jace- King Jaehaerys Targaryen. Um, and the dragon has not been mounted by another writer since Jaehaerys's death. Um, which I thought was really... And, and, I mean, it, it. I feel like a lot of people predicted it was Vermithor. Yeah, that's it, what I thought. But I, I was just like, I, I mean, I knew it, would be, it could be that or a Silverwing, but like one of the... It had to be one of the older dragons, but I assumed that it was Vermithor. Yeah, and it really lines up very nicely with this scene that we get, um, this face-off between Damon and Rhaenyra and Otto on the bridge at Dragonstone, because Otto mm-hmm. is telling them, you know, every symbol of legitimacy belongs to Aegon. He's talking about, you know, Aegon has the Conqueror's crown, he has the Conqueror's name, the Black Fire Sword, he also has Viserys's dagger. So it makes a lot of sense for Damon to want like this symbol of the old king's dragon on their side. And not just the old king, but like he was one of the most peaceful Targaryen rulers. Yeah. He's um, considered and, the best one out of everyone, you know? Yeah. And then also on top of that, there's the fact that, you know, aside from Vagar, Vermithor is the biggest dragon in Westeros at this time, I believe. Um, but did you have like any other theories about <laughs> what dragon that could have been? I was wondering, cause I know, uh, and this is something that, that comes up in the book that there are a, a bunch of dragons on dragonstones that don't have riders. And some of them are dragons that had once had riders like Vermithor and Silverwing, which Silverwing was the, um, uh, Alisans, uh, the queen Alisans, that was her mount. And when she died, you know, uh, uh, no one had taken over her as her rider. But then there's other dragons on uh, Dragonstone that have never had riders yet. 
And so they just have, they have a lot of dragons on Dragonstones, but not that that can be ridden in battle. And so I thought this is just sort of like a hint of like, you know, that this is a, like they need riders for these dragons uh, for the dance to come. So I, I thought that was like a little bit, you know, I, I was kind of uh, fascinated by uh, Damon uh, going and doing this. Though I did think at a certain point, I was like, man, maybe you should be comforting your wife right now <laughs> before you're going <laughs> to find Vermithor. But, you know, <laughs> Vermithor hasn't moved in a while. He's going to be there. So yeah, <laughs> that was my thought. But I, w- I was just glad we got to see lots of dragons and I like the dragons. So I was like, more dragons. So and Speaking of dragons, yes. let's now talk about Storm's End. Because yes. in the Civil War that is known as the Dance of the Dragons, this is the very first dragon fight since the days of old Valyria, if mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting my history right. Um, and just to table set this a little bit, this is, you know, this results in the death of Luke and his dragon Arax. Um to recap a little bit, Luke and Jace are sent as two of Rhaenyra's envoys to ensure support among her allies and remind the lords of Westeros that they swore her fealty as the future queen. Um, Luke goes to Storm's End, home to House Baratheon, but he finds that Aemon's Targaryen is, is already there doing the exact same thing for the Greens. Um, and also Aemon has sweetened the deal. He's brought marriage proposals for Boris Baratheon's daughters. Um, so Boris shoots down, um, Luke's offer or the queen's offer, I should say. And then Aemon is looking for a fight. He's still butthurt about the fact that he lost an <laughs> eye. I mean, kind of understandably. Yeah. Um, and he's Though well deserved on his part. He was talking yeah. smack and that's what he'd get for talking smack. Totally. So he's yeah. looking for some retribution. He tries to get Luke to take out his own eye as payment. Um, things don't go well, but Boris is like, not under my roof. I don't. Yeah. He Luke came as an envoy, a messenger. I will not have bloodshed. You know, leave. Take Luke to his dragon. Um, and so things play out a little bit differently in the book. I think we can talk about this scene in particular as it relates to the book, because there are a lot of, I think, key differences. The biggest one being that Eamon didn't really mean to kill Luke. He just lost control of his dragon. I mean, both kids, both both boys lost control of their dragons. It was Arax who breathed fire at Vagar, but then pissed off Vagar enough to go and want to kill Arax, Luke along with him. Um, I, I know some people really didn't like this scene, especially those who really love fire and blood and George R. R. Martin's work. Um, Lauren, what did you think about this? I, it's like one of those things. And I had just wrote, uh, best and worst changes, uh, for EW. And I've been all day long trying to figure out, uh, if I liked this change or not, because it is one thing when you realize that. Eamon, although he looks so much older than the actor who's playing Luke, is not that old at this point. He's like, I think on the show, he's like supposed to be 16. He was like 19 in the book. He's not, he's not an extremely, uh, he's a fierce warrior and everything, but he's still just a stupid teenage boy. Uh, So part of it is like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I did think the whole battle, like the whole chase, like was really well done. And I know uh, House of the Dragon has been having some issues with uh, criticisms that things were too dark. But I was watching it last night. It was nice. I was watching it on a, a very big television. And I was like, I thought the whole thing was really well filmed, like how, uh, you know, you would they were filming uh, Irax from the bottom. And then you just saw 
the shadow of how much bigger Vagar was. So I thought the whole entire chase scene was really, uh, really, really well done. But that sort of oops moment, I was just like, uh, like, Eamon, what were you planning to do? Like, you weren't chasing him like you were trying to kill him. Like, did you just want to force him down and take out his eye? And you were like, oops, I killed him. Like, it's not like <laughs> you know, Luke's not a big person. Taking the eye out might have, you know, killed him as well. So that little bit like, oh, no. Uh, so I'm still trying to like, I'm, uh, you know, maybe I will come to a decision on it later on in the week. But, uh, you know, it, it does make Eamon's like he's a little one note in the books where you're just like, he's just like, you know, fierce and bad. And this does add a little bit of complexity to him where he's just like, oh, you're just you, you can also just be a, you might be a fierce fighter and you're wearing a sapphire in your eye. But you're also a little bit of just a knucklehead teenage uh, teenage boy. Uh, so I, I'm kind of back and forth on it. How did you, what did you think about this? It didn't really bother me, the change, yeah. too much. Um, I, I kept thinking back to a couple of lines of dialogue that we heard in previous episodes. I believe it was, you know, Rhaenyra, that scene between her and Damon at the end of episode seven, where she says, you know, fire is such a strange power. Everything that House Targaryen possesses is owed to it yet it has cost us both what we love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a line that King Viserys tells young Rhaenyra in episode one. Um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's along the lines of, you know, we think we control dragons, but, you know, there's no controlling dragons. And so I felt this change really spoke to this idea that Targaryens, especially these two kids, I mean, I think yeah. Luke is... Luke is 14 at this point. Eamon isn't that much older at the time. And they think, they assume that they are in control of these two gargantuan beasts. I mean, Vagar is obviously much, much <laughs> yeah. more giant um, than little Arax. Oh, that was so devastating. But, yeah, you know, it kind of speaks to this, um, the hubris, kind of the ego um, that all these Targaryens have. I mean, they've been told since birth that they're by the small folk that they're closer to gods than men. And I think in this scene, it kind of really brought all of these different kind of threads to light. It's like, oh shit, <laughs> the dragons are also characters. They also yeah. have personalities. Own... Yeah, yeah. Um, on a smaller note, I really liked the 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 moment in the chase sequence. Um, where Luke rises above the clouds on the back of Arax. He gets all the way up. It, the rain, it's no longer raining. Oh, yeah, he's you above s- the rain, yeah. You see the sunlight. There's that kind of, like, moment of hope that maybe he's escaped it before Vagar comes up and delivers the kill blow. Um, but it reminded me of something Corliss said earlier in the episode. You know, he arrives at Dragonstone after, you know, and pledges his house and fleet to Rhaenyra. And he says something that's like, hope is the fool's ally. Yeah. And this was very much sort of the visual representation of that. Um, And also in another sense, you know, if we're getting, you know, more metaphorical and all this, you know, Luke was Rhaenyra's son who didn't want to be heir to Driftmark. He was really doubting himself. He was really doubting his capabilities, just as Rhaenyra doubted herself when she was his age. Um, Jace is very much like, I'm the heir to the Iron Throne. I'm doing all this to prepare myself for it. Um, but not little old Luke. And so I feel like the, with the death of Luke um, comes the death of Rhaenyra's own doubts and insecurities. And now she just wants to kill everybody. Yeah. 
<laughs> she really just truly does become the black queen at that moment. Because like, you know, I, I mean, I think it's very interesting with um, uh, between Allison's parenting and Rhaenyra's parenting that Rhaenyra seems to take much more of a joy out of being a mother and trying to raise good children than Allison does. Like Allison seems to hate her children, hate being a mother. But here you really see that like, you know, Rhaenyra's like taken this responsibility like really seriously to try and make sure that Jace understands like when Jace comes while she's in the middle of uh, labor and being like Jace you are now the heir to all like all of like trying to imbue him with the responsibility of what it means to be the heir to the Iron Throne that like you you can't just go off and decide to destroy things like this is your responsibility and she's trying you know, and she and she sort of understands that like Luke is not ready yet, um, but Luke wants to be wants to be brave. He wants to support his mother. So she's like, just to go to Storm's End. It's not that far. It's like when like the first time you like you have a kid and they want to cross the street by themselves. You're like, you could, let's try this dead end street here. Like you know, it's like go go right there. We're not going to put you on a highway. We're just going to you know we're going to do like. So she's trying to to give him like a small task that he can do. And, and just, unfortunately he ran into the biggest dragon in Westeros and you're just like, Oh, this poor, this poor young sweet boy. (laughs) Yeah. It's just awful. Yeah. So a little teaser, just a little teaser um, for my interview with director Greg Yutanis, um, who also directed um, episodes two and three, every, all the the Stepstones episodes um, for house of the dragon season one. Little teaser, which I loved. Um, he mentioned that prior to directing this episode, he watched How to Train Your Dragon, and he watched <laughs> and he watched the original Jurassic Park, which oh. I totally. I yeah, mean, I could see that. Yeah, he to- he has that great shot of you know the rain and the lightning being our only light source, and Luke looks up and sees Vagar in the background <laughs> rearing its head like the T Rex in Jurassic Park. Um, which I absolutely loved. Yeah. Um, and then Ryan Condal also mentioned um, Spielberg's 1971 movie Duel. Oh, um, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. yeah, and that is, and Greg kind of clarified. Um, he said that was mainly a reference to the fact that you know Amond doesn't really come in in the action until very much later on, and then is a very integral part of that. Um, but now let's let's take this time. I'm going to say like let's bring in the book and talk. Have more of a kind of spoilery, um, kind of open conversation. Um, mm-hmm. In case I, I mean I know I feel like everybody has so many thoughts, <laughs> especially book <laughs> readers, about this episode. Um, Lauren, was there anything either that you liked or didn't like um, that maybe House of the Dragon is now clarifying um, from the events of Fire and Blood, changing completely to kind of you know, for better or worse, serve its story. Um, anything that's kind of lingering that is sticking out in your mind? The main thing is that um, in the book, uh, Allison and Amond were very much uh, like the, all of the greens were very much like, we are stealing this throne. And, you know, like they, there seemed to be no doubt with them. They, they, just, they were doing it. They were ambitious. They were schemers. They were, you know, they didn't care who was the heir. And this one, uh, like House of the Dragon has in, uh, interjected a lot of like, like self-doubt. Like Allison, all last week in that, uh, in the penultimate episode, 
Like she thinks she's doing what Viserys has asked for. Um, you know, it conveniently lines up with what she's always wanted, but she really honestly thinks that this was Viserys's final wish. And she's really trying to like prevent, like, like she's, she, she does feel something for Rhaenyra. She doesn't want her to die. She knows that Viserys wouldn't want this. And then I think also like, you know, even though I, I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted on Aemond, uh, and his big oops, uh, that does really interject a, a more human element to him that I don't think was in the books, where he's just like, oh, you know, he's he's not this uh, just sort of evil, you know, jerk uh, killing his uh, killing his nephew, but that this was just like, you know, he kind of uh, he was being a jerk, but it just kind of got out of his control. So I think that's kind of interesting uh, to that they've created a lot more. Uh, sort of on the side of the, the the greens. I mean, Otto is still basically just as the Otto was in the book. There's no doubt there. He's just like, I'm taking this thing for my, my family. But I, I have found it uh, fascinating how much they've sort of uh, interjected this question of doubt on the side of the greens. How about you? Yeah, I think one thing that really kind of sticks out to me is just seeing who gets what piece of dialogue Mm-hmm. in house of the dragon versus fire and blood um you know in the book we in the book uh, the sea snake is very much part of these earlier conversations around yeah. the painted table um and he's saying things along the lines of you know we don't want to rule the city uh, we want to rule the city not burn it to the ground that kind of thing but i found it interesting in house of the dragon that you know a similar line was given to rainira And so, you know, if we're taking the approach that House of the Dragon is, you know, the objective account of the events of uh, the Dance of the Dragons, even, you know, an adaptation of the book and not a strict one-to-one, you know, I found it interesting that, you know, if we're thinking about the idea that history is written by the victors, how, you know, whoever is writing the history books, like, years and years and years down the line is addressing these events and mm-hmm. ma- and it's really Rhaenyra who's the one showing restraint meanwhile all the men out around her who are getting credit in the historical record for holding restraint are the ones urging her to war i thought that was i, I like that kind of yeah. that worked for me um this brings me to the easter egg section or any not just easter eggs but any kind of like fun moment or line or sigil spotting anything like that that stood well, out to you there was the one thing was that um you know in the show we've got the the eric and the eric uh twins and it, it's eric uh in the show that shows up with her crown but in uh the book it was stefan sir stefan darklin who came with her crown and eric was always was on her side but he wasn't the one who, who stole the crown uh, from King's Landing. So that was kind of one that sort of like popped in. I don't know particularly if that's an Easter egg, but like I always remembered like, you know, it was one of the uh, one of the uh, knights of the uh, now the Queen's Guard who came to deliver uh, her father's crown to her. Um, I'm trying to think of like what other uh, uh, Easter egg is. Do you have any any that popped out for you? One that I really liked is this line that Damon has. He says, it is no easy thing for a man to be a dragon slayer, but dragons can kill dragons and Mm -hmm. have. And that is a direct line from Fire and Blood. And I was so, so happy 
to see that in the show, especially because we didn't get that awesome Rhaenyra line where I'll have my throne <laughs> or I'll have your head. Oh, I'm, I'm still I'm still hoping we're going to get that line in some there, form. There is one that just popped out at me, though, when she doesn't, she says she doesn't want to be queen of ash and the ash and bone and it Mm. did remind me of that line that daenerys had in game of thrones where she said she didn't want to be queen of the ashes before you know of course she went and became the queen of the ashes but this was when she was still in her right mind but that did remind me of remind me of that uh especially and there were a lot of lines or just like a lot of just scenes where uh, there was that you know that ending shot of Renera just looking so fierce, and I'm, I saw it on Twitter where it was like that moment in the bells when Danny just is like, "That's it, I'm burning everything," and you're like, <laughs> "Same energy," you know. So I, I didn't see that. I was like, you know, it was interesting where where, it, and I think it's been interesting over the course of the season where you feel those call callbacks to to Daenerys and and sometimes a little bit of John, but mostly Daenerys, you know? Yeah. So where do we think this is all now taking us in season two? Like, do we have any theories about what season two is going to entail? We know a little bit. Um, Yeah. I'll, I'll share a little bit of what Ryan Condal told me um, in our interviews, which are, you know, partly already published on EW.com. But Ryan told me, um, quote, I'm really interested in picking up with all of those characters that we spent all of this time introducing, particularly Rhaenyra and Allison's families and seeing what happens now that we flip the chessboard over and spilled the pieces on the ground. How do all those characters react? That's the story that we tell in season two and beyond. He also said that season two will fall into that, will quote, fall into that ensemble piece where you're following multiple characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not they're not all in the same place, but this is still very much a story of Allison and Rhaenyra and their families pitted against each other. We're not going to suddenly pull away from telling their stories. It's just the nature of this thing in season two. It really opens up the world in a big way and the sprawl grows quite a bit. Um, and then I remember something that Miguel Sapochnik, um, who was a co-showrunner, executive producer, and director on season one, he's no longer showrunning or directing after season one. He's just going to be involved behind the scenes as an executive producer. Um, but he previously told me in a separate interview um, that there are three wild dragons that they designed already that we didn't oh. see in the first season, but I suspect we'll meet them in season two. Um, and then also we get the ver- uh, the Vermithor reveal mm-hmm. in, in this episode, which I think is really telling because it kind of brings in this idea of dragon seeds. Um, Lauren, do, do you want to talk about dragon seeds a little bit? Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier that on Dragonstone, there's a lot of dragons that are there that don't have riders. I assume that the three that he are t- uh, he's talking about are um, Grey Ghost, Sheep Stealer, and Cannibal. Um so uh, I think we'll see, obviously, um, they need writers. And if you're a book reader, you know who the various characters are that come in. And some of these writers are people with supposed Targaryen blood. Some of them just seem to be people who have natural affinity for dragons. So, uh, uh, you know, so that's interesting. So the dragon seeds coming in. And they're not exactly all noble characters, so I'm kind of curious to see how they write uh, write the dragon seeds uh, going forward. Uh, I'm also kind of interested 
how, you know, we had a lot of time jumps in this first season. I'm interested if they are going to do any more slight time jumps because uh, some of Renera's uh, youngest sons need to be a little bit, they, they were a little bit older than they are in the book. So I am curious if it's going to be that kind of soap opera thing where it's like, this person's a baby on a Monday, they're 10 years old. Like that kind of thing. Where it's like, you know, all of a sudden this baby is like, you know, is a teenager. So I am kind of curious about uh, whether that is going to happen or not, or how there's going to be some slight uh, aging up of various characters. Uh, so that's kind of like one thing that I was, I was thinking about, like how, about that moving forward. So yeah, here's hoping the time jumps are scaled back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're very sort of just like, you know, very, very sort of subtle. But, you know, because it is like right now, uh, you know, as the, the dance commences, uh, it, it really is just sort of action packed from here on out. Uh, so um, my thoughts and prayers to the CGI team of House of the Dragon, because I know they're going to have <laughs> their work cut out for them. But I will say hats off i thought the the dragon battle last night was spectacular so yeah well thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining me today lauren it's been an absolute joy to it talk about this show mm-hmm. with you um any final thoughts before we kind of put a cap on the you know, season finale I, it was interesting like before house of the dragon started i was very curious if there was still going to be an appetite for the thrones verse like i know a lot of people didn't like the way game of thrones ended so I, you know, I, I was just super curious, like, would people be into it? Would, you know, would there be an audience? And, and it's been kind of gratifying to see, yeah, people, people are still interested in Westeros. People, uh, people still like this world. People still like to talk about this world. So, uh, you know, hopefully this means we will, a uh, season two of West of Westeros <laughs> will kick off, you know, shortly before season two of House of the Dragon. Uh, but we will have a wrap up. Uh, we have a couple of special episodes coming. Uh, we have a crossover episode with our pals at All Rings Considered talking about both House of the Dragon and uh, the Rings of Power. And then we're going to have more of a, a season wrap up for uh, House of the Dragon where we talk about the season as a whole. Uh, but that's coming up as well. So is there anything you would like to say, Nick, about the, our uh our Yeah, experience? I mean... Listen, I'm, I feel like I'm going into hibernation at the end of this week. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, we do have some more bonus episodes. I also have a few more interviews that are coming up. Um, One I will say is for anyone uh, who loves the craftspeople, Mm -hmm. um, I spoke with Tim Lewis, who's the master armorer. And we talked about his experience designing all the swords and shields and, you know, the Viserys' Valyrian steel dagger um and also working with the swedish swordsmith who made Blackfire and dark sister um and also you know some key props of early episodes um which was really fascinating um and then from there i'm gonna keep some of the other interviews a little bit of a secret until uh we publish them i will look forward to reading them (laughs) (laughs) well well thank you again lauren this has been again such a joy Um, I will see you out in the great wide web. And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. 
You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.